In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm looking at the busiest days of the year for air travel. Then, for the main segment, therapist and retired airline captain Tom Button joins me to discuss how to deal with the fear of flying. He talks about the causes, how to address fears and anxieties around flying, how you can help those around you, and much more. Welcome to episode 25 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started. What is the busiest day of the year for air travel? Well, there are some different sources of data that we can look at for this information. For example, some airports and security screening agencies release the daily number of passengers that travel through their facilities. In the United States, data from the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, shows that the Sunday before American Thanksgiving is consistently one of the busiest days of the year. It held the number one spot in both 2019 and 2021, and as of the time of recording of this episode in early December 2022, the Thursday before Thanksgiving has also been the busiest day of the year so far. The days around Christmas also tend to be quite busy, with the TSA processing roughly 2.5 million passengers per day in 2019 during this period. North of the border in Canada, the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, or CATSA, which is responsible for airport security screening, releases similar data. It shows that the days before Christmas and the Friday before Canadian Thanksgiving, which is on the second Monday of October, tend to be very busy, but that the busiest day usually lands in the summer. In 2019, it was June 24th, closely followed by August 12th, and so far this year, the busiest day for air travel in Canada was on August 21st, 2022. In Europe, the busiest day also tends to be in the summer. At Amsterdam Airport Schiphol, for example, this day tends to be in late July, and London Heathrow's data from 2018 shows that the busiest day that year was July 29th. Other airports mirror the US trend of having their busiest days during the holiday seasons. According to Singapore Changi Airport, their busiest day tends to be the Saturday before Christmas. Did you know that some airlines offer grab-and-go style lounge concepts? In 2019, Air Canada launched the Air Canada Cafe at Toronto Pearson International Airport. In November 2022, United Airlines opened United Fly Club at Denver International Airport. Both of these spaces are accessible to those with lounge access but feature limited seating. They have a selection of complimentary grab-and-go options including coffee and tea, pre-packaged sandwiches, yogurt, snacks, and beverages. Tom Bunn is a licensed therapist, retired airline captain, and ex-United States Air Force pilot. He spent decades helping people address their fears and anxiety around flying, After being part of the first fear of flying program, which was started at Pan Am in 1975, he founded SOAR in 1982, which continues to offer programs to help people conquer their fear of flying. His unique combination of experiences has helped him help over 10,000 fearful flyers conquer their anxiety, panic, and claustrophobia when it comes to flying. 
The therapy he's developed has now been applied to a number of other contexts, including elevators, tunnels, and MRIs. He's the author of the prize-winning book, Panic Free, the 10-day program to help end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia. I'm very pleased to have him here with me today. Tom, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for letting me have a chance to put the word out there that we can fix this problem. Yeah, exactly. And you've spent decades working with people who've had a fear of flying. What do you yeah. find are some of the most common sources of these fears and anxieties? I, I, I almost hate to tell you this at the beginning, but it doesn't have very much to do with airplanes. It starts with trauma. You know, there's a point in a person's life very young when they never had some earth shaking situation happen to them. But then it does, probably to all of us. We've all had some trauma. Some of us have had pretty awful ones. But here's the thing. When we're in a traumatic situation, we're not in control. And because if we were in control, it wouldn't have been traumatic. We would have fixed it. And we couldn't escape because if we had gotten out of the situation, then we wouldn't have got the bad stuff happen to us. And it's interesting that what happens after our experiences, the brain kind of does a little bit of shorthand and it puts uh, sort of labels on situations. And the part of the brain that is supposed to, to be trying to keep us safe, the amygdala, it, it can react to the labels. So any situation that you later get into where you don't have control is going to trigger the release of stress hormones. Any situation that you get into or imagine that you might get into where you don't have control is going to trigger some stress hormones. So what happens then when you get on an airplane or even think of getting on the plane, you're confronted with this rise in your stress level because of you're getting into a situation where you don't have control and escape. It's interesting that we, as little kids, um, learn to deal with uh, not being in control and not being able to escape. With fantasy, we pretend we're superheroes. We can deal with anything. And then as adults, we look at action movies where um, you can dodge all the bullets, <laughs> no matter how many there are, or the racing cars that are coming to run us down. But at some point with fearful flyers, and it, and it usually happens by surprise, you start to get on the airplane and suddenly your ability to rationalize that you're a superhero that can deal with not being in control and not being able to escape, it suddenly hits you, not in that logic that I just presented, but in terms of you get slammed by stress hormones. Now, when we get hit with stress hormones, some of us are okay with it. Some of us are not. And so if we don't have good, automatic, effective pushback against the feeling of alarm, then we have to be in control or we have to be able to escape, or we have to have a fantasy that we're safe. So what I find I'm first doing with people though, is actually dealing with the question of the, of the plane, because you can learn more about how flying works. You can learn about the safety systems. You can learn about how pilots are trained. That's all good stuff. 
but you can't win the battle there because you can always come up with something that slips through the cracks. So what we can do though, by learning more about the airplane is say, well, it's not absolutely safe, which it would need to be for us to deal with our feelings intellectually. It's not absolutely safe, but it's safe enough to do. And if we get to the point we decide it's safe enough to do, that gives us permission to hack the emotional system. So since you said that you, you find that fear comes from uh, not, well, one of the first things you said is that it doesn't come from airplanes itself, and it's that loss of control. Do you find that people could possibly get on an airplane either for the first time or the first time in a while before even finding out that they have a fear of flying if they didn't know in advance? Yeah, yeah. It could be very surprising that they get on the plane and our people can fly fine for years and get on the plane and suddenly, for no apparent reason, can't stay or they stay and have a panic attack. That was actually one of the things I was wondering about is how people's fears um, of flying or the anxiety around flying can change over time and whether that's get better, of course, or like you were just saying now, maybe develop or get worse over time. Well, at, at the average age we found that fear of flying starts is 27. You know, when you're a teenager and you go out for the evening and your mom says, be careful, you know, she's a little <laughs> older. She knows there are things that could get you. You're a teenager and you think, no, I'm, invul I'm invulnerable. Nothing could happen to me. And so you go out and drive 80 miles an hour thinking nothing of it. <laughs> Uh, my son, I remember, um, was drinking one night and driving and hit a telephone pole. And he told me afterwards, he says, I never felt such an intense deceleration in my life when the airbag hit him. That was kind of a wake-up call. So when you have something like that happen to you, that can burst your bubble that you are invulnerable. Let me tell you about one client that... that <laughs> Her favorite sport before she had fear of flying was skydiving. Wow. She was a very athletic person. Um, and what she told me happened was she, before she had the problem of flying, he was out jogging one day. And she said, this is, this is kind of illuminating. She said, I had never thought about facing traffic. I guess she thought she was invulnerable, right? So she said she was out jogging, not facing traffic on the side of the road, and she was approaching a dead animal lying there on the side of the road. So she said, all I did was just put one foot up on the pavement, and I got hit by a pickup truck. And I said, oh, my God, the broken bones and all this pain. She says, it didn't break any bones, but there was a huge amount of bruising and, and ligament damage. And after that, she couldn't fly as a passenger. She went from skydiving, jumping out of planes with parachutes, to not being able to get into a plane as a passenger. So do you see, I think what happened is that it burst her bubble that she was invulnerable. So sometimes it can happen like that. Sometimes it can happen because someone who's a loved one or a friend gets killed or dies in some way we weren't expecting or it can just happen because you get more mature it almost seems like it's one of those things like 
for once you get older and you have kids, you start to worry more about the world and you learn, you realize there's all these dangers around you. And I think that sort of maybe applies to fly and gets into your head, right? That it does. That is, well, when I said age 27 is the Mm -hmm. average, when I mean, when I'm saying that, that's when it happens kind of out of the blue, Mm -hmm. but it also happens when you get married for many people. It also happens when you first, I started to say, have you have a child, but it actually, it can happen while a child is on the way. One explanation I was given by some neurologist is that they said that as you approach delivery, hormones change, which cause you to become obsessed with safety. And you know what we do as prospective parents, we go out and get little plastic things to put in the light electric sockets and and put cushions on the ends of the square mm-hmm. edge tables and these things we, these, these are not major threats but we cover every possible threat to take care of the approaching delivery of the new child mm-hmm. so yeah. they said we just become obsessed with safety as we are about to become parents i understand that you said that or, or that you found that takeoff and turbulence are big times where people are, are not very comfortable with. And right, right. Well, now let's go back again to, first of all, the basic thing that stress hormones are released by the amygdala if we don't have a good system to mm-hmm. deal with them, mm-hmm. um, then they can cause high anxiety and panic. So if you go up on the stepladder to paint the ceiling or to change a light bulb. You're up there and you're really focusing on your task. If you start to lose your balance, the amygdala is going to notice that and say, oh, wait a minute, you're about to fall. And I'm going to zap you with a lot of stress hormones to make you forget about what you're doing up there in that ladder and fix your balance so you might otherwise get hurt. So that's good. Alarm will push right through our concentration and stop you from worrying about your task, worrying about hitting the floor. Okay. That's great. On the airplane, though the plane is not falling, the slight up and down motion that takes place in turbulence happens when the plane's going 500 some miles an hour. So it feels like it's falling. It, and it ampli- that small amount of up and down movement is amplified by the extreme speed. So when the plane moves slightly down, it feels like the plane is dropping. The amygdala reacts to that. It doesn't need to, but it does, and it will. And it's not just one drop. It's one drop after another, after another. So it's one shot of stress hormones after another, after another. And they build up, and they can drive a person up the wall because when you get a huge amount of stress hormones, you're having the same feelings that you would expect to have in a life-threatening situation. So it's very hard to be there with your heart pounding and yourself sweating and all this tension in your body and say to yourself, I'm sure everything's fine. (laughs) So it doesn't work. (laughs) We have to find a way to fix that. The other thing is takeoff. And the thing about takeoff is it's similar in a way because there's one thing after another, after another, uh, in turbulence, one drop after another, after another, but on takeoff, it's different things one after another. The first thing that happens is when the pilots push the throttles forward, the engines speed up, the pitch goes higher. Now that's normal, but the amygdala 
its basic way of operating is if anything happens that I'm not used to, I'm going to release stress hormones. So it's not used to hearing the engines speed up and the pitch go higher. So it's going to release some stress hormones. This can be confusing. Intellectually, you say, this is totally normal. Why am I having these feelings? But the amygdala has, as it were, a mind of its own. And then you get pushed back in your seat. Something's being done to you. That also is a situation about not being in control. And it may actually resonate with some, most of us have been bullied or intruded on physically in one way or another. Some of us pretty bad ways. So the plane doing something to us can trigger us. And one that I think is really interesting is this one. You're used to accelerating in your car for maybe 10 or 12 seconds to get on a highway. Think what it would be like in your car if you were blindfolded, maybe somebody else is driving, let's say. And after 10 or 12 seconds of acceleration, it just keeps accelerating and it keeps accelerating and it keeps accelerating for 20, 30 seconds. You definitely would be upset about that because you'd be going well over 100 miles an hour. Well, it's okay to do that on the airplane because it's a wide runway and it's a couple of miles long. But the amygdala is not used to 30 seconds of acceleration. Somewhere in there, it's going to say, whoa, something's got to be wrong here. This is not normal. That can give you stress hormones. Then when the plane goes in the air, it's getting some distance between the engines and the runway. So there's less sound reflected from the engines down to the runway and back to you when you're up in the air versus when you're on the runway. So it gets quieter. That can throw you uh, because it can make it seem like the engines have quit or gotten weaker and maybe the plane's going to go smacking back onto the runway. Hear that a lot. Then this one that's really tricky, almost everybody has trouble with this. About 20 seconds after takeoff, we do what's called noise abatement. This is where the plane is about to fly out over people's houses. Engines make a lot of noise, so you pull back the power so they make less noise. When you pull back the power, you can't climb as rapidly. The climb rate slows down. So two things happen at once. The engines get quieter, and it feels like you're dropping. It's the same feeling that you would get in an elevator. You're headed toward the 10th floor. As you pass the ninth floor, the elevator slows down. Now, you know what's going on there. The elevator's just doing what it normally does. But in an airplane, when you feel that lightheadedness, when your speed of acceleration upward slows down, then you could think that you're in trouble. So those are things that it does help intellectually know about. But it also helps if you link each of these things that contribute you to something that will activate your calming system. And this is, we're, we're now about to touch on what really fixes the problem. I stumbled on something years ago. There was a therapist in Washington, D.C., Jerry Lynn Ross, who was treating fear of flying with something she called thought stopping. The idea was put a rubber band on your wrist every time you think a thought that causes stress snap it to cause yourself pain. And therefore, after a while, you'll inhibit the thoughts with pain. And I thought, okay, it makes sense, but I just don't like self-inflicted self mm -hmm. pain. 
So I thought maybe I can train people to simply, when they think about the plane taking off, think about something else. So I would say, what's some big deal thing that you've done that uh, is pretty important, maybe dynamic thing? I had a woman who said, well, I, I run the marathon. I thought, oh, that's impressive. Okay, so I want you to stand there. And when I give you this hand signal, I want you to go step, 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 take yourself back to the marathon vividly, relive it. So I'd say, okay, plane's taxing out, give her the signal to take herself back to the marathon. Okay, plane's on the runway taking off, take her back to the marathon. So went through the whole flight like that. She did okay, but it was hit or miss. And um, except there was one thing that always worked and that was linking being on the plane in these various situations on the plane, linking those situations to getting engaged. I did not know why that worked for years and then ran across research by a neuroscientist, Stephen Porges. He had stumbled on the fact that when we're with a person who is in our experience, totally safe to be with. That is, they're not going to hurt us physically. They're not going to hurt us emotionally. When we're with that kind of person, they exude signals that we pick up unconsciously that activate that calming system that we need to use to push back against stress hormones. And so if you think about it, at the time you're getting engaged, you are with a person who is really safe. They're not going to hurt you physically, and they're not going to hurt you emotionally because they totally accept accept you. Now, <laughs> what happens after a year or two in a relationship, maybe you're not totally accepted. <laughs> so when I work with a client, I'll say, we need to find someone in your life who is both physically and emotionally safe to, for you to be with. And sometimes when they say, well, I'm going to choose my spouse. And I say, well, look, I'm married too. And I know that that might not work because <laughs> we're not totally accepted after we've been with someone for a few years. Do you have a buddy who does, who, who you're not so closely connected to, who, who just doesn't criticize you, doesn't judge you? And so that's usually where I head with, with this. Just a person who's easygoing, who, when you're with them, you don't have to be on guard. That person disables the uh, need to react. So we just go through the things that are going to happen on the flight, and we connect them to the person's face, the person's voice, the person's touch. That then causes the parasympathetic nervous system. It activates that parasympathetic system, pushes back against stress hormones. Another thing that works is Pets, when we interact with our pets, we produce oxytocin. When oxytocin is produced, it shuts down the fear system. And the last one that I know about is a solid chest-to-chest -chest hug. Preferably skin-to-skin -skin produces oxytocin. But even with clothing on, it produces some. So it, now fixing fear of flying is so simple we go through a list of things that happen on a flight. You know what they are. You walk on the plane, you sit down in the seat, you put on your seat belt, da, 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 da. So you link each one of them to two things. One is some memory of a time when you produced oxytocin. So that because of these links, 
when you get on the plane and you sit down in the seat, you produce oxytocin. When the door closes, you produce oxytocin, et cetera, through the flight. The other thing is you link all of those things also to the face and the voice and the body language or touch of a person who activates your calming system so that when these things happen on the plane, instead of getting stressed, you get relaxed. The problem is you don't know what's going to work ahead of time. <laughs> you get on the plane thinking something like this can't possibly work. And amazingly enough, it does. So the tricky thing is having the courage to get on the plane when you believe this can't possibly work. But it, um, so I really have to work to try to convince people to give it a shot once they've done the, once they've set it up to protect themselves, to actually give it a try. Flying fighters, there was one particular thing that was helpful. It's a still, still an additional way to, to deal with fear of flying. And that is that if you're committed to doing something, even though it has some risk, you, you cook that, you, you bake that into the cake. And so you just accept the fact that you're doing something that could get you. And if you say, well, I can accept the fact that I'm doing this, but I could get hurt or I could get even killed and you committed to do it anyway, your fear system just kind of says, okay, I give up. I'm trying to protect you, but I can't get, <laughs> you won't let me. So I'm going to let, just let you relax. Sometimes people told me they just wait until the last minute to get on the plane. Then they race onto the plane and they jump into their seat and try to trap themselves on the plane before they know what they're doing. And then when the door closes, it's the, it, the shock hits them. Oh my God, I'm on the plane. I can't get off. What I've tried to suggest people should do, we see that's, that's they're, they're past the point of no return. So I have a little exercise called the abstract point of no return, where you're not on the plane, but you decide that you are get on, you are going to get on the plane and you are going to accept the risk. And even if it kills you, you're going to take the flight. So if you can make that commitment that you're going to do it, no matter what happens, not everybody can do this, but if you can make that commitment, then the part of you that's trying to say you shouldn't do this gives up and you can have a certain amount of peace. Now, what happens generally is People who try to use this technique, let's say they're going to fly in three days. Today, they say, okay, I'm going to do it no matter what. Next day, they wake up and say, nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> they have to keep remaking that mm -hmm. commitment in order for this to work. Before we wrap up, I was um, hoping to ask you about one more thing that I think might be helpful to some listeners. I've had an experience before where I'm sitting on a plane and, and the person beside me, uh, even though I'm doing okay, the person beside me is clearly not having a great time. They're, they were gripping the armrest during, their, during takeoff and landing, closing their eyes, that type of thing. Uh, what advice do you have for people to help those around them, whether it's family uh, or strangers uh, sitting beside them, uh, deal with their fears or their anxieties? Well, the trouble they're having is based on what they're imagining. So if you can get them engaged in conversation, they're going to do less imagining, maybe not. So if you can get them involved talking about something, um, that will help them. And But just a further thing that if a person does go into panic, they've gone deep into their imagination and they think they're about to die. Um, 
you need to pull them out of their imagination. So the technique I found this, this is what I used to do at Pan Am when we were flying with people at the end of these courses. And, and it worked, the course wasn't working very well. People were in panic attack while they were doing a, their breathing exercises, just as we taught them. Um, so <clears throat> what I would do is I'd get right in their face and hold up one, two, three fingers. I'd say, how many fingers is that? They wouldn't be able to tell me. So I would once again say, how many fingers is that? Count my fingers. How many? And finally, they would say, uh, uh, two or three or whatever it was. And then I would change the number of fingers and ask the question again to pull them out from their imagination into something right in their face that and force them to come out and count <laughs> the number of fingers. And so that is a technique you can use if someone goes into panic. Tom Bunn is the president and founder of SOAR, which has helped over 10,000 fearful flyers control anxiety, panic, and claustrophobia when flying. As a former Air Force pilot, airline captain, and licensed therapist, he has a unique set of experiences that has led him to develop a therapy that helps people conquer their fear of flying. He's also the author of the award-winning book, Panic Free, the 10-day program to end panic and anxiety and claustrophobia. You can learn more about him, his book, and SOAR's Fear of Flying program at www.fearofflying.com. Tom, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. If you're listening around the time of publication, I want to take a quick moment to wish you a wonderful and joyous holiday season. I'll be back in two weeks in the new year with an all new episode of Flying Smarter. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.